You know, now more than ever, it's important to stay informed and keep learning about what's happening in the world across a wide range of topics. That's why you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus. That'll give you unlimited access to watch over 8,000 engaging video lectures presented by award-winning experts. You can learn about whatever interests you, great literature, world history, the mysteries of human behavior, even how to play chess or just take better photos. And The Great Courses Plus is adding new courses all the time. Plus, you can watch these lectures on your schedule. Stream from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, TV. Start and pick up when you want from any device. Listeners to this podcast should probably watch their new course, Becoming a Great Essayist. You'll pick up wonderful tools to enhance your own creativity and write in a way that's unique to your own experience and goals. It'll add shape and color to your words. You'll become a writer. And there's a special offer because you're a Brett Easton Ellis listener. You can watch this course and so many others with a free trial. All you have to do is sign up through the special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's B-R-E-T. Start your free trial today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. B-R-E-T. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. The following program is a Podcast One.com production. You're listening to the Brady Sonellas Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Andrew McCarthy. This year is the 30th anniversary of the release of the movie version of Less Than Zero, which came out in November of 1987, two years after Simon & Schuster had put out a first printing of my debut novel of about 5,000 copies, expecting maybe to sell half that. And I was excited nonetheless because I didn't care what it was going to sell. I was just amazed that the book was published at all. And that something I'd been working on for the past five years was actually going to be a hardcover book sold in bookstores. In the long-ago empire in the America of the 1980s, not only did it take much longer than it does now for a book to catch on with a reading public, but also for books, actual books, to make it out of the warehouses and land in actual bookstores, which was where everyone went to buy a book and to spend an hour or two browsing in the aisles, one of my favorite pastimes that is just about impossible to replicate anymore. 
though Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard is just a few blocks from my house here in West Hollywood. And there is a four-story Barnes & Noble at The Grove, which isn't far from my place either. But that desire has been zapped away by the easy convenience of Amazon. You can easily, because of Amazon, get a book on the day it is actually published, if you'd like. But that wasn't the case in May of 1985, when a first novel left a warehouse and slowly made itself available through the rest of the country that May and into that summer. And it wasn't until October of that year that the book appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. It wasn't a blockbuster, but it sold well for a first novel, truly a word-of-mouth success, since initially Simon & Schuster gave us no money to promote the book. So there was, at first, zero advertising. And yet the media was curious and started writing about the book as well as myself. And soon, for whatever the reasons are, the book connected with a large and very youthful audience who saw themselves mirrored in the book's attitude and sensibility. It confirmed something for many people as if it was a news bulletin from the front lines. These are what kids are like today. Rather than a highly personal novel that I had been working on in one form or another since I was 16. And at 20, when I finished it, felt like it was a reflection of where I thought ultimately we all were in that moment. And not just about myself. The narrator was both me and not me. Or maybe the real appeal often was the spell it cast for readers thousands of miles away from Southern California, what it would be like to live in this Beverly Hills fantasy, so cool, so 80s. Whatever the reasons, Lesson Zero was a true word-of-mouth hit. Our tour guide through the debauchery was handsome and pale, clay, 18 and passive, druggy and bi, who was profoundly disconnected from just about everyone, especially his family, his girlfriend Blair, and his friends, including Julian, who turns tricks with older men in order to pay off a drug debt, and who Clay does nothing in order to save. There's no real plot into the last quarter of the book. It's told in fragments, a mosaic, where the details keep adding up with hopefully a quiet menace. There's certainly no love and no friendship. Money, easy access to drugs, and teenage sex open the door to a kind of gleaming nihilism. Disappear here, the book keeps insisting, quoting a billboard on Sunset that Clay becomes haunted by. Part of the appeal of the book to young people was that they really hadn't been presented this way in American fiction. Sophisticated teenagers aping the attitudes of their materialistic, narcissistic, boomer parents. And yet Less Than Zero doesn't blame the parents. In fact, it's rare for a young person's novel to be made up of kids who are just as bad, if not worse, than the parents. The parents in books about young people were usually villainized. And the parents are barely on display in Less Than Zero. It's the kids, left to their own devices, who have tripped themselves into this world of too much money, too many drugs, too little feeling, who are their own worst enemies and not the parents. The book also reflected the numbness that was so pervasive and that was everywhere in the culture when I started writing the book in 1980, particularly in post-70s L.A., something the writer Michael Tolkien and I talked about on this podcast a few years back. A numbness that was thrilling. A numbness that was a feeling, too. The movie rights were actually optioned, if I remember correctly, before publication by an independent producer named Marvin Worth, who had a deal with 20th Century Fox and who would be financing the movie. The purchase was sponsored by Scott Rudin and Larry Mark, who were the vice presidents of production under Barry Diller, who was the chairman of Fox at the time. And all three of these men wanted to make the movie. There is a first script by the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Michael Christopher, but Fox in this moment thought it was too harsh for a commercial film. And commercial film is the conflict here. We're already at a divide between the novel and film. Why purchase the rights to Lesson Zero if you're not going to make the book? 
Well, because the book was successful and a touchstone for some young people, maybe you roll the dice and see if you can make some money from a screen adaptation. But we are never talking about a sure thing here. This wasn't the fault in our stars. The book didn't sell 18 million copies. And this wasn't going to be a family-friendly enterprise ever. And if Fox was going to make an honest adaptation of the book, then they should go all the way because a compromised version was never going to work because it wasn't what people responded to initially about how the material was presented in the novel. They responded to the opposite. They responded to the cool numbness of it all. So they bring in the producer, John Avnet, who had produced Risky Business. And Avnet has said about the Michael Christopher script that it was, quote unquote, depressing and degrading. And you begin to wonder if Avnet had ever read the book. And so Avnet wants to, quote, transform a very extreme situation into a sentimental story about warmth, caring and tenderness in an atmosphere hostile to these kinds of emotions, unquote. Larry Gordon, who had been the president of Fox when the book was purchased, was replaced ultimately by family man Leonard Goldberg, who found the material, quote-unquote, distasteful and said so. But Barry Diller persisted and wanted the movie made. Everyone just needs to be on the same page on how to do it. So the screenwriter Harley Payton is now hired to write a new script where Clay's bisexuality is eliminated, along with his drug use, and he is no longer passive and, quote-unquote, amoral. And yet execs at the studio still find it too edgy to make for $8 million, which was not a lot of money for a studio film in the late 80s. But they think they find the right director, the British Merrick Kanievska, who was hired to direct because he had dealt with ambivalent sexuality and made unlikable characters appealing in his previous film, Another Country, with Rupert Everett in a role loosely based on the gay spy Guy Burgess. Shooting commences, but ultimately the studio takes the movie away from Kanievska because he was, according to people on set, making it too edgy, staying closer in spirit to the source material. The cinematographer Edward Lockman remembers that he had an incredible Steadicam shot of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were unknown at the time, performing at one of the clubs in the movie, I think it must have been Power Tools, that the studio hated because the Chili Peppers were quote-unquote shirtless and sweaty. And the studio demanded that the Steadicam shot be removed. Yes, this is what Merrick Kanievska was dealing with. Early test screenings for audiences between the ages of 15 to 21 revealed that the audiences hated the Robert Downey Jr. character. So new scenes were shot, and I'm assuming without Merrick, to make Downey and Jamie Gertz's characters more likable and repentant. That was the studio's word, repentant. The lavish high school graduation sequence that opens the movie was part of the reshoots, with a lot of smiling, good vibes, and champagne being popped. And because of all this panic and wrangling, there is something off about the movie. It doesn't work dramatically. In the pre-credit sequence, there are strained plot shenanigans already engulfing the movie, expressing a kind of intense feeling from the main characters that isn't from the book. Clay and Julian and Blair are now a team, happily graduating from high school together and looking forward to the summer and beyond. And yet in a flashback from Clay's impossibly chic dorm room somewhere on the East Coast, Camden perhaps... It seems that Clay and Julian are best friends, and Blair is Clay's main squeeze. Julian is staying in L.A. to pursue a career as a record producer, and Blair wants to concentrate on her modeling career rather than going to college. In the book, Blair attends the University of Southern California. And in the movie, over Clay's first term away, Julian becomes impossibly addicted to drugs, and Julian and Blair end up sleeping together, with Clay finding out about it when he returns to L.A. at Thanksgiving break for a surprise visit, and finds the two of them in bed in Blair's spectacular downtown loft. And so a love triangle is set up. A conventional narrative structure has been imposed upon a book where narrative was non-existent and which now needs to resolve itself because the movie, even before the credits, has set this storyline up. 
Clay is now upstanding, anti-drug, resolutely heterosexual, and chastising everyone, the ultimate Jewish mother. Clay, who doesn't care about anything, is now the moral center of this movie. Downey is trying hard to make Julian lost and lovable. And the smart, spoiled, tough girl Blair from the book, who knows this is all a mess and a scam, and yet still loves the indifferent, passive Clay, is now the super jittery and helpless Jamie Gertz, teary-eyed and earnest and completely miscast. The supposed heat between Andrew McCarthy and Jamie Gertz, which wasn't in the book, is especially iffy in the movie, even though they are constantly making out and they have to simulate sex twice. The credit sequence with neon red lettering and the bangles' hazy shade of winter blasting over it still feels somewhat iconic, though watching Clay return back to L.A. for Christmas break now and smiling at familiar L.A. landmarks, the Hard Rock Cafe, and oddly enough the Beverly Hills boutique Giorgio's, craning his neck out of the cab to get a better look at it all seems bizarre since he was just back three weeks earlier before the credits and seems to have little trepidation, as he has in the book, about returning to a city that he knows and has confirmed itself to be a nightmare for him. And even more specifically in the movie with his best friend and girlfriend now an item. None of this is from the book. In fact, I don't think there's a single scene in the book where Julian and Blair are together. Ed Lockman ends up being the key creative artist on this movie. It's very lavish and gorgeously lit and shot. It's often stunningly beautiful, accentuating massive open spaces, suggesting the loneliness of L.A. And the sets were, for the most part, spectacular. There's an epic Christmas party sequence early on, complete with fake snow and hundreds upon hundreds of extras. Brad Pitt is one of them. And with fantastic exterior and interior decor, including fake icebergs dotted with video monitors and giant Christmas trees dusted white, that our suggestions, this is ostensibly a movie about cocaine. And the look of it all may remind you that this kind of movie will never be made again on such a scale. And as an artifact from that era, Less Than Zero is unparalleled. No other youth culture film set in L.A. has such an epic look. And yet it doesn't work as a movie because it betrays the source material, taking the punk nihilism that influenced the book and trying to squeeze it into a teen-friendly big studio mainstream movie, a movie about friendship with way too much smiling, tearful smiling, sexy smiling, happy smiling, created an incredibly lopsided movie. It's also poorly paced and dramatically lackluster, and it has an earnestness that ultimately kills it. And it concerns itself way too much with the parents who are presented as caring types. Ooh, a studio note. Let's have a few sympathetic parents, represented by Nicholas Pryor as Julian's put-upon father, in a couple of big, terrible, fake, gooey scenes. The big father-son hug on the tennis court, counting as the worst moment in this hugs-not-drugs version of the book. And there is Tony Bill as Clay's dad, who gives a Christmas dinner speech about the importance of family and love, as well as seriously considering giving his son 50 grand in order to pay off a friend's drug debt. Dad, Clay says, I need your help. Where this was dreamt up, one can only ask the executives at Fox in 1987. And you're reminded, why would one want to make this movie in the first place? The feeling in it is embarrassing. As the movie starts edging into darkness with James Spader perfecting his yuppie sleaze act as Rip, Julian's malevolent gay dealer, and Thomas Newman's haunting, lush, orchestral score begins overwhelming you, one realizes that Less Than Zero's roots are actually tied to noir, with Clay now as a doomed hero trying to save his doomed best friend from a criminal, searching the dark post-Christmas neon streets of CDLA and Palm Springs for his troubled buddy. And yes, as that troubled buddy, Robert Downey gives what remains, I think, his best screen performance. He's rather amazing and incredibly soulful in this movie. He has never been less mannered than he is in Less Than Zero. The later mannerisms, the Downey shtick hasn't happened yet and won't for a few years. 
and he makes Julian's downfall dark and moving. But everyone is ultimately undone by the fact that the movie is begging for our sympathy. The movie received some good reviews from Roger Ebert, who gave it four stars, as well as Janet Maslin in the New York Times and David Denby when he was writing for New York Magazine. None of them, and they made it very clear, liked the book. But this was balanced for the most part by critics like Terrence Rafferty in The New Yorker calling the movie flat-out terrible. It did okay at the box office, but not enough to suggest a different reputation. And it was pretty much derided all over the place, and ever since, as being the soft version of a hard book. And it just never played or worked with audiences or critics. Anyway, Mary Kanieska didn't direct another movie for 13 years, and the movie is now regarded as a druggy brat pack curio, unavailable on Netflix or iTunes. There have been rumors for years that Quentin Tarantino was interested in doing a more faithful adaptation of the book, but then those rumors turned out to be only rumors. And they were replaced with new rumors that Greg Araki and Bryant Singer were going to turn it into a miniseries for cable and were going to shoot the book. I had actually read a script that Greg had written for a feature remake of Lesson Zero many years ago, and I remembered how obsessed he'd been. This deal ultimately fell through and is now being developed at another production company. So even 30 years later, maybe someone will finally make that faithful adaptation of Lesson Zero. Andrew McCarthy was straightjacketed by this conception of Clay. How could any actor play it? And yet he comes away unscathed. At times, his coolly distant Clay has an almost amused attitude about the excess and folly surrounding him. But his moral panic, though decorative, seems wrenching at times. Though it must have been a drag to play this character who is the whitewashed straight man. But McCarthy always seemed cast for his sanity and reserve. And this happened right from his first role in 1983's Class, where he co-starred with Rob Lowe and Jacqueline Bissett, as well as John Cusack and Alan Ruck. And he became a kind of go-to guy for Gen X stoicism and mild despair, aloof, distant, sensitive, hesitant, ambivalent, uncertain. These are all words that have been used to describe McCarthy as an actor, as well as the characters he was playing, specializing in a kind of detachment. There was always a tension in his eyes, almost a look of constant terror that suggested an intense sensitivity, and it's there from class onward. Heaven Help Us, St. Almost Fire, Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, Fresh Horses were all examples of this. And because of these films, McCarthy became a touchstone. These movies were nowhere near great, but they are cherished in a way that not a lot of movies from the dismal pits of the 1980s are. Ultimately, time passes for McCarthy, and though he keeps making movies, like most other actors, he moves into television, and ultimately he becomes both an assured travel writer with his first book, The Longest Way Home, as well as becoming an in-demand TV director. And now he has published his first young adult novel called Just Fly Away. This career has a kind of searching Gen X quality that I can relate to as well. Andrew McCarthy and I had never met until the summer of 2010 on the opening of the Imperial Bedrooms book tour at the Union Square Barnes and Noble in Manhattan, where he introduced me. And we had dinner, I think, a couple of years later here in L.A., We've never spoken about Lesson Zero specifically, the project that ties us together and what happened and what the shoot was like, but I am bombarded with requests to address this, and I somewhat did in the opening sections of Imperial Bedrooms, the ostensible sequel to Lesson Zero, and that Andrew McCarthy actually did the audio version of Random House in 2010, but never with Andrew's version of events. I mean, I wasn't there, I was never on the set, so I don't really know how it played out except for various things I've read and what a few key people who knew Kanieska told me. And Andrew, I've never heard you talk about Lesson Zero and your role in it specifically. It was just always like, oh, it didn't work and the studio was at fault. Um, but there is a narrative here that seems both complicated and more dramatic than only that. 
and yet it seems like the norm for a certain kind of studio movie from that era. When did you become aware of the book, and when did you realize that you might actually be playing Clay? And was it that Christopher script, the one you had signed on for? I can't remember exactly when I first heard about it. I was aware of the book before I was aware that there was going to be a movie. I do remember reading the Christopher script and thinking how exciting it was and wanting to be in it. And I had done, I think the most recent movie I'd done was Mannequin. So they were like, well, dude, you're, you know, you're hanging out with mannequins. You're not really, you know, you can audition for it. So I auditioned for it and then I screen tested for it. Uh, but uh, and, and that script I thought was really uh, quite good. And I had read the book, I remember, at some point before that. And then uh, I didn't sort of compare the scripts in the book, but I, I remembered it feel it, to me capturing the essence of what I remember, the, the experience of the book, anyway. And uh, so then I was cast in the, in the movie, and then X amount of months later, we came to coming to shoot the movie, and the, I was presented with a new script by the, you know, the one that Harley wrote that you talked about. It's interesting to hear you talk about the history of uh, the way it came into being, because I don't rem- remember, you know, you talk about Marvin Worth and all these people, oh, yeah, Marvin, right, and it all starts to come back, but Marvin was long gone from the movie by the time we oh, made right. it. Yeah, and He's still got a credit, I think. He's still got a, did, kind he, of did, producing credit. Yeah. I, I really liked Marvin. I thought he was a good man. But yeah, I think in listening to your discussion of the movie starts to go wrong once you start bringing John Avnet's shocking quote in, which I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. And that right there, that should have been a red flag for everybody. That's entirely not what this – how could this book, film ever succeed if that's what they were going to try and make it into, you know, and um, you know, shoehorn it into that kind of – redemptive story of something that just didn't make any sense. I didn't know that John was on record as saying that. And I think, frankly, very much he wanted to direct that film. I remember being in, at some point late in the filming, being in a bar with him in uh, when we were out in the desert in Palm Springs and he talking about how he was, which he then went on to direct some successful movies, but how he would have, you know, liked to have directed that film. When they did the reshoots, was Merrick actually doing those reshoots? That's what I, I, you know, I think he was. I think Merrick was always there. The reshoots, my recollection of what the reshoots were about was that this was a movie, as you said, sort of just an observation as best could be uh, of this subculture of rich privileged Beverly Hills kids and there was a lot and Merrick was so good about what he he didn't cast any judgment on it he just tried to present yes. it and I thought that was really smart and I thought that's what kept the book was really interesting it just presented these people make your own judgments and there was something very chilling about that um, and so my recollection is that we had to reshoot this stuff because it was sort of the Nancy Reagan era of just say no and this is too harsh and the studio executives saw the film and went, wait, these are our children. This can't be like this. This is not what right. this is going to be about. We've got to just soften this. We've got to flush the cocaine down the toilet. We've got to make this redemptive. There's a tragic story here and yet it has to end on a slight uplift because how are we going to get through the day? You know, so – and Merrick was there, I, my memory. I can't imagine who else would have been saying action. I can't believe I can't remember that. But uh, – I rem- my feeling is that he felt very, you know, humiliated to be there saying action. Uh, but he was. I don't think anyone else could. I don't think the DJ would have allowed anyone else to be there. And I don't remember Avnet or anyone else saying action. So I think Mark was just sort of humiliated to be there. 
I kind of tuned out about uh, the filming of it. Um, they first offered me politely to, if I wanted to write the screenplay, and I was in college, and so I wasn't really going to do that because I had classes to take. So I, I, I turned that down. I kind of wish I, I hadn't turned that down, and I at least you know given it a shot. And I kind of tuned out when I had heard that Keanu Reeves and Bridget Fonda were in the mix to star in the movie. <laughs> I never heard that. And then it ultimately became you and Jamie Gertz and Downey. I think Downey was always their choice to play Julian. But what was the chemistry like between you and Jamie Gertz? What do you remember from the, that period? I mean, this is a movie where you have to de- have this super deep sexual connection with someone. You're making out. She's giving you hand jobs and cars. You have these sex scenes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it clearly, must be excruciating. Said, no, you know, Jamie's a lovely lady, and you know, but there was no chemistry of any. Kind of certainly no chemi- sexual chemistry between us. So, and she's a lovely person. I think she felt very uncomfortable in that role. I don't know that she was well suited for it. I don't think I did a particularly good job in the film either. But that's we can get to that. But uh, there certainly was no um, chemistry there between us. And then there was a sort of push to create this edge of sexual kind of thing that just makes it more embarrassing than anything else, really. Well, the movie's so beautiful, and when I was watching it again recently, I was struck, as I said in the opening, that they, they will not make movies like that anymore. They will not make movies on that kind of scale, even though it was $8 million. That is one of the more spectacular party scenes in youth culture, 80s youth culture movie making, and everyone looks fantastic, you know. So, on well, a surfacey is- level, the movie kind of delivers. Well, the movie delivers that, and I think Ed did a beautiful job. Beautiful job, beautiful and so job. did Thomas Newman's. I think the score is fantastic. The score is fantastic. It's beautifully designed, and it's be- you know it's very you know beautifully shot in that way. And I remember as an actor being frustrated though. Ed never stopped lighting. I, I don't know why I, I would remember, but he never that. between every take. Wait, I just have one little thing and it'd be fifteen minutes, and then I just have one little more thing to add and it'd be another twenty minutes between take three and four. I just have one little, and so Ed never stopped lighting. So from the acting point of view, that was quite frustrating. But he um, created beautiful pools of light and images that were um, that gave the movie a real chill in a certain way. And I don't know that it honestly helped tell the story, but seeing the story was so crippled from the get go, it certainly helped the movie be more palatable to watch um but i don't know that it particularly was in service of story as opposed to an overall sort of in service of ed's dynamic abilities during this period downey was making the pickup artist and the writer director james toback wrote a long piece for vanity fair about how difficult it was to shoot the pickup artist because of downey's drug problem I knew him very casually around that time as well, going out maybe a few nights. And, uh, you know, of course, the nights ended up where they ended up, though he was lovely. Was this apparent at all on the set of Lesson Zero? Um, Downey has often referred to that movie as the beginning of his downfall. Jesus, if that's the beginning, I would hate to have seen the end. I mean, Bobby was <laughs> my memory is that Bobby was in a very bad way at that time, you know, and uh, full on. And it was not a particularly secret. I mean, you know, Julian would be all cranked up, and Bobby would come out of his trailer just like ready to, you know, loaded for bear. And that was, you know, so if that was the beginning of the end, you know, he's lucky to be alive. <laughs> how do you act on that? I mean, how do you? I mean, I can. I find it impossible to just about do anything. Ex- except, you know, smoke and listen to music or clean my office, actually concentrate on writing or delivering, honestly, a performance as good as Downey's. Well, he's so, you know, Bobby's become obviously so famous for a certain kind of thing, but I think what he has that is so special is his his extraordinarily fragility, you know, and vulnerability and um, wounded quality that I think is 
heartbreaking. And yes. And that was on full display there because, you know, I just remember coming out of his trailer times and then he would have this push-up on. He would do these 10 push-ups, you know, however many, 50 push to get himself sort of jacked up in this way compared to whatever he'd just been doing in his, his room. And he was just in this kind of frenzied state and I would just look at him and just be bewildered as an actor and as a human. Like, wow. what? And it was very full on and you knew it was powerful and potent and so uh, intimidating in a certain way but um, it was quite disturbing Merrick Kanieska who I had never met called me a week before the movie was going to open and just a day or two before I was going to see a screening of it at the Fox screening rooms in New York and Merrick said he wanted to meet me before I saw the movie and um, to apologize to you <laughs> well yeah well I had never met with Merrick before this and I hadn't heard anything about the movie and that fall I was also busy with promoting the rules of attraction and also with writing American Psycho and so the movie really wasn't on my radar until I knew it was opening and that there had been a screening set up for me and I got this call from Merrick and he asked me to meet him at Nell's which was a very popular nightclub at the moment listeners and he told me to meet him at 6 p.m. and I didn't even know that Nell's was open at 6 p.m. but I went there I'm interested in meeting this man and having no idea about all the problems with the production I had skimmed the Michael Christopher script but I hadn't read the Harley Payton script so Nell's is dark and there's no one there I don't think I'd even been there before 11 p.m. myself but Merrick is slumped in a booth and when I sit down I realize he's quite drunk and I'm like, hey, Merrick, nice to meet you. How did the movie turn out? And he looks at me uh, and says, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I tried my best. Uh, I fought the battles. I lost. I'm so sorry. And so we had a couple of drinks, and I got kind of pit in my stomach about, oh, so this really didn't work out to um, you know Merrick's, the director's ideal. And so I went to a packed Fox screening room uh it, it, that week in New York, and I could automatically tell something was wrong, even though, you know, it's exciting to see your fictional world visualized. I don't think it is anymore when it's that disappointing. Uh, and, uh, you know, that first time is exciting, and it made me overlook things for a while, but then I just couldn't overlook things because it just slowly dawned on me as the movie crept to an end that there was not a single line of dialogue nor a single scene from my novel on screen. Now, I addressed a lot of this in the loose sequel uh, to Less Than Zero that was published in 2010 called Imperial Bedrooms, really an updating of where these characters had landed in adulthood in a kind of kind of conspiracy noir, not necessarily a sequel in my mind. And, and so it kind of brings us up to date on where Clay and Julian, who dies in the movie but not in the novel Less Than Zero, and Blair and Rip all are. And you read the book on audio, Andrew. And I remember seeing footage of what Random House was going to use on uh, on their website of the interview they filmed with you just moments after you finished reading that book. And you looked somewhat stunned. And it seemed that you were, uh, I don't know, something, processing something after reading that book. I'm assuming you agreed to read the book after looking at the um, first few pages, not really knowing what was in store later on. Or what was your reaction after you read that? What am I referencing? You looked flushed. <laughs> you were kind of panting a little bit. <laughs> Luckily, I've never seen that. Um, it's terrible how things live on. Uh, well, I just agreed to do it on site on, on red. I mean, I said, I said, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah, I'd love to. I love this book. So, but I find that book so the, the end of that book particularly so painful, and that book. It seems the entire book is you're writing to the last sentence in that book because I'm afraid of people. Yeah. You write the yeah. whole book makes yes, sense true. and falls into place when you say, because I'm afraid of people. Yeah. And so I go, oh, Jesus Christ, he's writing right from 
word one, you've been writing to that. Correct. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But I mean, I can so, I could so clearly feel that in a way that I never had before with it. You know, I've heard John Irving doesn't start a novel till he knows where the last thing ends, and he wrote the most meandering novels in the world. But that I knew instantly, and I could so identify with that uh, statement that I just found it chilling. And the whole sexual thing that happens at the end of that book, I, I found so. It's everything. It's, it's exciting and erotic and degrading and cruel and passionate and nihilistic and horrible and something deeply human about it and all because I'm afraid of people. I, so I, was, I, had a, I had an experience in reading it and so they captured – they talked to me you know, a minute after I finished it and I was have, in the throes of having – but that's what a good book does, right? It gives you this experience. So I suppose that's what that was. Like I said, I've never seen that interview. I forgot it existed. way home and i really really like that book and i recommend it and i'm not surprised by this passage but it confirms something quote as a teenager i was the close friend and confident when all i wanted to be was the boyfriend it was my sudden success in movies several years later that gave me the sexual currency i craved my overt sensitivity previously not potent bait for the opposite sex suddenly manifested as a draw and instilled in me a power I welcomed. It's unlikely that young women would have wanted to follow me into public bathrooms had I not been in the movies they were going to see. But whatever the reason, my ability to attract women became a core part of who I was to become a man, a strong component of my identity, and it fueled my self-esteem. And then you write, quote, I was an unlikely choice for the lead male role in Pretty in Pink, a now iconic coming-of-age love story. At the time of filming in 1985, it seemed to me like a silly movie about a girl wanting to go to a dance. I was an oversensitive youth cast as a hunk, a 22-year-old middle-class kid playing a 17-year-old boy of privilege. What gave my portrayal impact and contributed to the movie's popularity at the time and its enduring relevance was the ambivalence I brought to the role. The character's uncertainty regarding his place echoed my own and spoke to a generation of young women and men. And again, this idea announces itself about you. Uh, you write, quote, In my early 20s, when I suddenly became recognizable as an actor, I was utterly unaware of how to handle the beam of attention directed toward me, unless it was sexual attention. The mask of casual disinterest I had begun to develop as a child grew into a defining personality trait of defensive aloofness. 
The ambivalence about my success didn't help my reaction to it. No doubt I was masking anxiety and insecurity. Part of me certainly believed that my present good fortune might be fleeting, and so I convinced myself I didn't really want it. My ambivalence guarded me against disappointment, a stable position from which to operate. And finally, quote, my initial reaction to nearly every social situation is to shy away that in the end I often come out of such encounters energized and excited is something I've been slow to acknowledge. Add to this my acute barometer for shame, both my own and the one I perceive in others. When I see people behaving in ways that betray insecurity, masked with bravado, I feel embarrassed for them. I'm always shocked they don't. I judge them harshly and run for the exit. I guess the question is, and this is tied into acting, and this is tied into the movies. I mean, I guess the question is, was there another side of you that you wanted to explore as an actor making movies during that era rather than the ones you ended up doing? I mean, would you have preferred playing the James Spader roles or of that era or Downey in something like The Pickup Artist? And, and also, what were movies to you? You once said that the movies that ended up making you famous were not the kind of movies you were interested in. So I guess the question is, what movies were you interested in and what roles would you have liked to have played if you look back at that decade when you were, you know, at the front of this group of actors? It's interesting hearing you read those words from my book. I hadn't, you know, it's been a number of years since I wrote that. And uh, I would agree with all of that, except that something, I said something in there about the, it was a stable position from which to go from. It's not really a stable position. But, um, I don't know how to answer that. I suppose the, the simplest and sort of most complete answer is I didn't really have the belief in myself as an actor to reach for higher things. Um, you know, those movies in hindsight now, like you articulately put in your introduction there, were they've come to be known in this affectionate kind of way that we hold dear, but they're not in and of themselves, as films, they're not of value in and of themselves, you know, so uh, I, I don't know that I felt I deserved um, more or better, I, I just sort of knew that I yearned to be taken more seriously, I suppose, I wanted to be doing more serious kind of things, whatever that would have been, I think at the time movies like Falcon and the Snowman were serious films for people of that age, and, you know, I don't even remember what that was about, but I just remember the time going, that's the kind of movie I want to be in. You know, I don't think it made any money and was successful, but I remember it was serious and it's and nature. Timothy Hutton and I, I suppose I, and I didn't know, I always admired the way, um, Leonardo DiCaprio handled things. And when he got famous for something, he then chose, I'm going to work with these directors. And so he, transformed what could have been a teen idol career into this kind of thing. I, I happen to think that he was terribly miscast in all these Martin Scorsese movies where he's I think he's a beautiful tenor instrument trying to play a baritone or a bass and I don't think it's it suits him. But um when he does things like, you know, Catch Me If You Can or these kind of movies, he, he lets that fidelity fly. He's delicious. You know, when he's, when he's trying to be a man in these ways, I often kind of go, oh, Leo. But what do I know? It turned out to be great career moves, and he's, gets, he's this huge star. And had I known at the time or had the confidence to go, wait, you know what? I'm going to hold out and see. Why don't I see if Martin Scorsese will have, or whoever it was at the mm -hmm. moment have a cup of coffee with me? And, you know, and eventually work toward working with those people. I, that didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to do that. And I don't know that I really had the belief in myself to kind of go, well, Jesus, what the hell would Martin Scorsese want to sit down and talk to me about at that time? Right. Or whoever, at that, right. whoever that person was at that time. So uh, I suppose I was always slightly um, – I wasn't surprised really that it had happened. I have to say I wasn't surprised that it happened to me. Uh, and yet I didn't know – 
I didn't have a core belief that uh, to build on it and go from there. You know, and so I was constantly reacting as opposed to you know deciding. I profiled Matt Dillon way back in 1991 for uh, the now defunct American Film Magazine. And he talked about the career he was probably going to have compared to his other contemporaries, mainly Tom Cruise, who he had starred with in The Outsiders. And he said that in order to be Tom Cruise, you have to really want it in ways that Dylan really wasn't quite sure he wanted. And you have to have an innate sense of the business of making movies, Mm -hmm. that in order to be a movie star, you have to do things that Matt Dillon was not interested in doing, and that Tom Cruise must be much more calculated in ways that Dylan wasn't to have the career Cruz had. And then, for example, Matt Dillon uh, said that he would have never done Top Gun. Matthew Modine was on this podcast, too, and said he, he the same thing, that he would never have done it. But that movie helped make Tom Cruise a star. And Tom Cruise uh, has said that he never saw Top Gun as a jingoistic movie. He It appealed to him because it was a, just about facing your fears. But the jingoism that Dylan and Modine saw in it was the reason that they would never have done that movie. Does any of that ring true to you? Yeah. That's very astute of Matt. I, I, you know, you have to question at a certain point how much I really wanted uh, – wanted. I, I was talking to Alec Baldwin once and he, <coughs> we were talking about something about this kind of notion of fame. And he goes, well, maybe you just didn't want it. And it had never occurred to me. There's part of me that – didn't you know want it and yet another part of me that very much did and wanted to have uh, all the things that the opportunities that it brings but um i just i do i think i have too much shame to sort of god he's shameless god bless him you know i just don't have it i can't walk into the room and do that if i don't feel it i can't do it and i just god bless him that they can just hats off and I have to turn the other way because I can't watch because I yeah I get it and so I'm not in a certain like temperamentally suited uh, for it is there a performance that you can sit through of yours that you actually like and don't cringe at well I mean I don't know in the sense that I haven't watched any movies in ages but um, I did a TV show last year a short lived TV show that I watched my work in and I thought I played a pedophile the family so yeah yeah and I thought I really um I'd stack that up against anybody in that I, I thought I found a, a humanity in this per- depraved uh you know the sick person in a, in a way that was quite empathetic that I was like wow that's re- that's not on the page I brought that and uh I was quite pleased with that but uh, I hadn't acted a number of years before that and the only reason I did that was because I wanted to go back I said if I'm going to act again I'm going to do go back to why I first acted, which had nothing to do about vanity or uh, praise or anything. It was just, it felt like me when I did it. And so that's why I'm going to do this if I do this and to open myself up into, in a way. And that was very satisfying to me. I mean, it was, you know, it didn't succeed. So that's always disappointing, especially when you open yourself up and then you don't succeed. It's always, that hurts. So, uh, but that performance I'm fine with. I'm good with that. I think, uh, you know, looking back, I, I haven't seen it, but St. Emma's Fire, I think there are parts of that that I really put my stamp on that. That that would have been a very different part had somebody else played it. And I just – I had a certain, you know, rotten before it's ripe quality that made that guy appealing. But didn't you do some su- successful stage Yeah, work? no, and I do place, do a lot of – fair amount of theater and things. But it's sort of none of my business if I'm very good, really. You just do your thing and you walk away. I mean, um, so – 
I just am not interested in watching it. You know, it just makes me self-conscious. You said that you would not waste success on anyone under 30. I don't know about that necessarily, but what do you mean and how does this comment relate to you? I didn't say waste. I don't think, I don't, I don't think I would wish success on anyone under 30 in the sense that um, – it, it, how it reflects on me is that I just wasn't particularly equipped to uh, deal with that, you know, and I wasn't particularly equipped to use it and parlay it into things that, you know, people use success to do further their creative ventures yes. in a certain way. You know, if you're using it to get laid and get reservations, it's fine, but people use it to parlay and know where they want to go creatively and take the, and, and team up with people that they want to team up with creatively, and they have the wherewithal and the confidence to do that, and I had none of that when I had those opportunities, so that's what I'm speaking and, to. And I'm wondering if this has something to do with it as well, because you've been sober since the mid-90s, but you started drinking at around age 12 or 13, and I knew I knew about this, and it's, it's a problem that you've talked about in interviews, but when you, I was reading about you, it was much more severe than I thought. I mean, you were drinking on sets, and you were often hung over during shooting, I guess most famously in the scene in the record store with Molly Ringwald and Pretty in Pink. But rumor has it that you were either drunk or hung over in just about every scene you were in. And you had alcoholic seizures and you had to be hospitalized at various times due to your drinking. And when you were shooting Year of the Gun in Rome in 1991, the director, John Frankenheimer, actually comes into your trailer on the first day of shooting and you were drinking a bottle of vodka at lunch. And he has a fit. It was that <laughs> it was that rap. <laughs> but you feel you can handle it and that he was harassing you somehow. But you get clean ultimately. But what does a 12-year-old or whenever you started drinking, is it tied into the complexity of who you are as a person to the, the Andrew McCarthy, uh, the Andy McCarthiness of it all? Yeah, I mean, alcoholism is a funny thing. I mean, but I, I, I certainly don't think it was because of any success that I uh, was an alcoholic, you know, that I, I am. I think that's... Um, I, my joke is that, you know, I just drank better vodka than I would have. Um, and it certainly helped for a while. The thing about alcohol is it works, right? It works for a while until it eventually turns in on you. There's a line I like about um, man takes a drink, the drink takes the drink, then the drink takes the man. You know, and that's all an invisible line where you're, it's, it's helping, it's helping, and then it turns around and comes to get you, you know. And um, it certainly destroyed my career, uh, I would go so far as to say, but – it didn't have to do with success. I think it, it, it was a, a um, primary condition of itself. It wasn't a result of something. So really the drinking d did derail the career? It, oh, it sure. I mean, it helped because I think I was so afraid. And, you know, I was such a fearful person that um, it helped me not be afraid. Or so it seemed for a while until, again, until it turns in on you and then exacerbates the fear. But um, it certainly... Uh, didn't help and i certainly think yeah i'd say at the end you know i i started drinking on sets in you know near the end there night i stopped drinking in 92 so so on yeah, cinema's fire on lesson zero no, was i wasn't drinking during, the, during when we were making cinema's fire during the day i don't think i don't think nor in pretty and pink afterward i certainly was probably hung over a lot i think a lot of that vulnerability you see in pretty and pink is just me going whoa <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can't remember exactly when I started drinking on this. In Less Than Zero, there was a lot of, you know, drugs and alcohol around, just sort of rampant around. And so that was happening at times for sure. Um, and I suppose it might have started around then during work. But it wasn't always – certainly wasn't – you know, it happened a lot. And I was constantly recovering from uh, alcohol when I was working. 
if not drinking. I want to talk about the importance of casting, of casting the right person in roles and how that's really like half the battle in a way. Yeah, Mike Nichols, what he said, 90% of my job is casting. And I would have to agree after mm. directing for the first time over the summer this um, digital series that I directed. But in Pretty in Pink, there is a, the idea that the initial script's heart was in the right place with Andy, R- Molly Ringwald, rejects the scaredy cat rich guy, you, Andrew, for her best bud, Ducky, played by John Cryer, who has always loved her. And the idea of this ending is very satisfying and seems to be the movie's reason to exist. It's set up in the first two-thirds of this film and of the script, and we're hoping for this payoff in the final prom sequence. But something happens in casting. There were other choices for Ducky, including Robert Downey and Anthony Michael Hall, who both turned it down. And if one of them decided to do it, I think the film would have retained its original ending. Downey definitely would have given the role of sexuality that Cryer just couldn't give it. Even Anthony Michael Hall could have displayed something that would have made the Molly Ringwald character shift her view. I mean, I think Downey would have been a legitimate threat to the Blaine character sexually. But it isn't the miscasting of Cryer by Howard Deutsch, who was Cryer's biggest supporter, that kind of upended that movie and caused that reshoot, I believe, to happen. Molly Ringwald has always said that the character seemed gay as they shot the film, and she was among the supporters who, after the film was shot with the original ending, wanted to change it as well. After test audiences of teen girls, 15 to 21, hated the ending because they wanted her to end up with you. And so the ending is reshot with her getting you, and it makes sense now because it wouldn't have made sense necessarily with John Cryer. And so this all comes back to this crucial notion of casting. And now that you are directing yourself, though often in fixed shows where the casting has already occurred, you must be even more attuned to this than you were when you were acting and making movies. I didn't know that about uh, Bobby and uh, Anthony Michael Hall in that. But I don't think the movie would have succeeded uh well, and it didn't, you know, with the way it was. It had to be sort of be reshot into this. So then it became a fairy tale kind of thing. The message of the movie became sort of fairy tale esque, as, as opposed to the original ten you were talking about of like the right thing, the wholesome thing turning into your true friendship, and that turns into a thing. The sort of, I guess, the whole story or the arc or the archetypal thing of the movie changed when she. Um, but and that wouldn't have happened, yeah, with other casting. So I suppose you know, what you're saying is John is miscast, and then we caught a lucky sort of break, as it were, with it, with that. Um, I remember also thinking the same thing at the time, like, Jesus, God, this guy's so gay. I mean, isn't it? You know, it's just funny. <laughs> Matthew Mobadine on this podcast talked about his share of horror stories working on a Stanley Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket. Much like most actors have uh, ambivalent feelings about working for Kubrick, who was insistent on line readings and puppeteering the actors in a way. And there was a big problem on that set with Vincent D'Onofrio, who was so into the method that he was in character as Gomer Pyle goes nuts. Not the innocent country boy who needs Private Joker's help. D'Onofrio was fine shooting that, but as he descended into murderous suicidal madness in the film, he became increasingly off-putting on set to the point of almost causing fights between himself and Modine. And Modine said it didn't add anything to the performances. It was just unpleasant and stressful. I know you had your problems with Vincent when you were shooting, I guess, an episode of Law & Order at one point, and you were actually, I guess, fired by Dick Wolf. What was that about, and what are your preferred method in terms of getting inside a character as an actor? Well, the second part first, I mean, I think it's that's your business to take care of it at home. Come to work and be a professional. Walk in and do it. I don't want to see how hard it was for you to, to get there. I mean, when I'm directing now, I love nothing better than an actor to walk in and go, hi, how you doing? Where do you want me? There, bam, done. Thank you. I don't want to, you know, if you have to go through your process, fine, and I'll help you get through your process. But that's just 
it's amateurish and childish and silly to sort of bring all that process out. It, that's your work. Do it at home. Come to work and be a pro. Um, my thing with Vincent D'Onofrio was that I was guesting on that show. Um, my friend Warren Light had written a show, written a, a part for me to come in. I wrote this really big R, guest star. We come and do it? And I said, sure. And I'd been doing it, and it was my last day of filming, and Vincent D'Onofrio started telling me what to do. And I had just had my first child at the time, my, a son, and months before and I suddenly got this sort of feeling he started telling me what to do and I thought I somehow equated it with some sort of sense of manhood because he was a big bully Vincent he's a huge guy physically and I am not and he was sort of starting towering over me telling me what to do and I grew up with a father who was also had a ferocious temper and I just had this son so finally I said you know what this is the moment I fall on my sword and I go Vincent don't tell me what to do he said what? I go, don't, don't direct me. We'll figure it out. And Don's the director, and he can tell us, but we'll, and we'll figure it out. He goes, this is my show. Good. That's fine. This is my part. Anyway, it escalated from there, and he says, I'll knock your fucking head off. I go, that's fine, but you're not telling me what to do. This is my fucking set, you motherfucker. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? I go, maybe you're set. This is my spot, and I'm standing on it, and you're not telling me what to do. And it escalated, and he flipped out. Get this motherfucker off my set. And anyway, so they brought me in. The producers brought me into the room and said, Wilson, you know, whatever. I, I said, guys, you, you've made your choice to eat because this is the way we run our show. Vincent comes in and he tells people and that that's the way we do it. I go, well, that's not how I do it. You've made your choice to eat shit. You eat your shit. I'm not eating his shit. So you do whatever you want. You fire me, but you're firing the wrong guy. But obviously you're not going to fire him, but do whatever you want. I'm, he's not telling me what to do. And so they fired me. They sent me home. An hour later, they called me back. Will you come back and finish? Because it was the last day. I mean, they would have to reshoot the whole millions right. of dollars. Of the thing. It's like, of course I'll come back. So I came back, and they said, okay, go apologize to Vince. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> said, we'll go talk to him. You go in the room and, t- you know, straighten it out with him. I go, okay. Anyway, we go into the room, and he says, you want to apologize to me? I'm like, no. I didn't do anything. And anyway... I walk out and I said, why don't I just do my side of this thing with the script supervisor and let him come do his side with the script supervisor and we'll be done with it. You know, we'll do singles. And, you know, I, they said, whatever, we, we can't guarantee everyone's safety on the set. And I said, well, you have my word, I won't hit him. <laughs> you know, and so anyway, <laughs> so they said, fired me a second time and sent me home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the wardrobe people came running up to me, giving me the clothes. Take the clothes, take the clothes. The team said, let me drive you home. I mean, from years after that, I had people coming up to me, hugging me on the street because they'd heard I stood up to Vince because he was a notorious bully mm-hmm. on that show. I don't know what he's like now. Maybe he's a lovely man. He may have been going through whatever demons he was going through, but he was absolutely unprofessional and horrible at that time. And I wasn't going to take it. And so I stand behind. It's one of the prouder moments of my life, my professional life. <laughs> well, you've been acting. You did. A, you were acting a lot of TV. You were in Lipstick Jungle, and you were in various other shows. And now you're directing a lot of TV. I mean, I think you directed a short, but you haven't directed a, a feature yet. But you've directed everything from Orange is a New Black to Gossip Girl to The Carrie Diaries to Happy-ish, which I don't even know what that is, to Halt and Catch Fire, which I do know what that is, to White Collar. That's a good show. Interesting show. The yep. one, yeah. Um, white Collar to The Blacklist to The Family. And I'm not going to pretend with you that I watch any network TV because I don't. But a long conversation that we've been having on this podcast from the very beginning with everyone from directors like Quentin Tarantino to James Gray, 
who has been shooting both movies and television, to Alan Ball and Matthew Weiner, is the notion of what the best TV is capable of compared to what the best movies are capable of. Now, it is tricky, I must admit, to maintain a podcast that was ostensibly about movie culture versus TV culture, when at the time we started this podcast, it wasn't so obvious yet that TV would overtake movies as a creatively superior mode of entertainment. And of course, the conversation was that because of TV economics and the fact that the camera doesn't become a character in the way that they do in movies, and the fact that the writer is the star on TV instead of the director, the auteur, this leads to differences between the two mediums and which one is more suited to, a, say, a visual artist. This is changing. And I definitely think that, for example, I think the work of um, that John Mark Valley did on Big Little Lies is really kind of far superior to the work he did in his uh, previous three movies. He had enough time to kind of roam around these stories and add in a very specific visual idea for that show, which really wasn't so apparent five years ago, four years ago. It was pretty much single medium uh, master. But the idea that the camera wasn't part of the aesthetic deal of the TV show is changing. But there must be a kind of straightjacking in a way when you come in as a director and you're going to direct something like The Blacklist, though you've hinted that that's not necessarily true on The Blacklist. And maybe there's something less on, like, Halt and Catch Fire. Maybe there's more. What, what do you make of all of this? What do you think about this notion that TV is actually, is it, is it actually changing to accommodate a director's sensibility? Well, I don't know that it's changing to accommodate a director's sensibility, but it's changing the way we tell stories because of the long form of TV and streaming and everything. So you're watching, you know, you're, they're writing longer stories and stuff. And But TV, like you said, is very much the writer's medium. And, they, and it depends not... And not all writers are visual people or cinematic or filmmakers. You know, they're word people in certain many of them. Like there's certain shows I'll do where it's just I want to see my faces saying my words. Okay, fine. Other shows don't care about that. Um, and walking in as a sort of journeyman guest director on a show is a complicated thing. The ones that seem to do really well and have long careers are get-along guys who go, sure, yeah, great, I'll do that. Whereas um, – you know, they want you to bring something to the table, and yet they want that, that our, that's not our show. Our show's this. So you're trying to walk this sort of tightrope between these kind of uh, those two worlds of bringing something in and doing doing something that's far from what they consider their show. And um, as a director, a guest director walking in, there's often a producer sitting behind you in a chair, and which is fine, except one of the producer, sometimes they bring their insecurities to the table, and they're just going to assert at a certain point, I think you should do this. And like, well, and they haven't right. thought it through. They're just asserting, basically, I'm your boss, and I can tell you what to do at any yeah. given moment when I want to. And it happens a couple times per episode with a certain type of producer who has a certain insecurity, and yet they, if they feel you're sort of doing too well, you know, it, it's unconscious often. But if you're doing too well, and the crew's loving, and the cast loving, you're doing, you're under your days are coming in short and the material's really good, they'll come in and go, you need to do a close-up there. I'm like, well, dude, no, we're, we're pushing the camera and it's pushing in like this, we're doing this, it's much more cinematic and it's telling the emotional story of it closing in on them like that. No, no, just do a close-up. And so I suffer in the sense I go, well, that's a fucking stupid idea. Okay, fine, we'll do it. You know, now I've done it more and I'm more confident and I'm more, I know it doesn't matter, I know what his deal is, That he's, that's just their insecurity sort of coming up here. I go, okay, sure, we'll do them both. You know, but um, I have gotten in trouble in the past where I've just sort of 
bristle at that notion. And but again, that's also sometimes my insecurity where uh, I don't want to be questioned at a certain. And you know, when you're when you're full charge and galloping, and the most important job of a aspect to a TV director's job is getting it on time. Yeah. Really, that's yeah. it. If you yeah. have an idea after that, you're Orson Welles. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm talking, you know, not HBO shows that can have 15, 16 days and make these be- um So it's a complicated tightrope in um, doing, uh, walking in onto other people's shows. At some point, you become a really good travel writer, actually a pretty good writer in general. And this is evident in that book that is both travelogue and memoir, The Longest Way Home, which I recommend. And yet you have admitted that you are someone who is not particularly interested in writing until you are about 30. And yet you have won, uh, you know, a Travel Writer of the Year Award, and you are quite good at it and somewhat prolific. I mean, were there ultimately any influences that pushed you in that direction? I mean, not only in travel writing, but with fiction in general. Were there writers that you wanted to emulate that affected you? And were you a big reader? Well, I didn't. I don't think I read till I was 30. I started writing later. I mean, I didn't read. I can't remember reading a book before I uh, stopped drinking when I was 30 years old, 29. Um, I don't remember reading anything before that. Certainly not in my 20s when I was drinking. I don't remember reading, really. I'm sure I must have, but uh, I don't recall anything. Anyway, so I didn't read till I was 30-ish, and then I started reading a lot for a decade or so, and then I started having kids, and then it was all over. But um, Well, in that decade, was, who, who affected you the most? Who were, the, who well, were some of the know, books Paul or writers? Well, books, travel books changed my life. I mean, I, someone gave me the old Patagonian Express, mm-hmm. and that changed my life because I said, oh, my God, that's a way of traveling and seeing the world that I just had never considered. So that book – in particular, just changed my life because I hit the road and then I started writing about it. But, you know, I started writing about it solely for my own, just for me to keep me company. And, you know, I was an actor, so I knew, and I'd been around stories so much that I knew to just write stories of, of encounters and things and dialogue and, you know, beginning, middle, and end and, you know, and conflict and all that kind of stuff. So I, I wrote those, like, notebooks for myself for, like, 10 years before I ever had any inkling to do anything about it and then one day I did and I went to an editor and I said let me write for your magazine just those 10 years of reading nothing before nothing after well, I was said I didn't read in high school I don't remember reading any of those books <laughs> you know a separate piece or catching the rod because I remember reading when I was 30 I remember going back and, I should read those books that I was supposed to read in high school and actually some of them are pretty good mm-hmm. <laughs> So you were working on a novel for seven years about a married guy who had a one-night fling and had a child and who spent 25 years keeping it a secret. You have said that it was terrible. But when do you realize this over seven years? I mean, what and what was the impetus to write that particular story? Well, was it in first person? No, it was sort of a close third person. Um, it, it was. I, I don't know that it was terrible. It just didn't work. How many pages did you have? Oh, after seven I, you know, years? there were many, 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 many drafts. Okay, many drafts. I mean, and it was about, it was really about secrecy and the notion of secrecy being corrosive and how it d- destroys a marriage. And based on this one secret, you know, the book started with a guy having sex in a bathroom with a woman who wasn't his wife at a party, and it was the only time he ever saw her until he saw her eight months later, and she was hugely pregnant. He was like, "Oh my god!" And then there was this kid, and. It, he, and he wasn't even in the kid's life, but he just kept this thing that happened a secret. And uh, I was fa- I'm, I, you know, the idea of marriage is fascinating to me, having been on my second one now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> how do people maintain their inherent individuality and yet stay in intimacy with someone else, which is what I wrote the whole first book about, really. And how do we do that? How do we manage that? How do I keep me and be with us? And how, why does one sort of squish and push back the other and all that? I, I'm fascinated by that. Um, 
particularly once you have kids in that dynamic. And, you know, then you've got that whole thing. Um, so anyway, I worked on it. And then my favorite character in, in, in there about 15 pages in the middle of that book where the daughter was 15 years old when she found out that her father had this kid. She heard about it. And suddenly I started writing from her. One day I was on a plane and I literally just said, my dad's fucking asshole. He's got this other kid. And suddenly I was – everything's – you know better than me. I mean it, it mm-hmm. told me what to do and I just went, Wow. And so suddenly I was writing this first person from a 15-year-old girl's point of view. And everything about the first novel, nothing else is it from those many, many drafts of that novel or appear in the, the, book, the book, except the inciting incident of, you know, my dad has this eight-year-old kid I never heard about. And that's it. And then the rest of the book takes. But what was interesting is I knew all the people. I knew the world they lived in. I knew the family dynamics. I knew everything because I'd written this whole basically character history for – hundreds, thousands of pages before. So once I started writing and found the access into it, I knew everything about them and what what was, you know, what happened surprised me. But the world I was swimming in, I couldn't, anywhere I turned was the truth of that world because I knew it so well and I'd had it in my head for so many years. Could you have done it as an adult novel with a 15-year-old? Of course. Of course. I mean, that, and yet once I did that, I was... I didn't ever, and I still don't actually know if I've ever read any YA, what that means particularly. Um, although there's a lot of, I think half the readership of YA are adults, but there's something about the emotion. I knew I was writing from the 15-year-old in myself and to the 15-year-old in myself. I knew that's who I was talking to, and that was my reader. And so I just that created an emotional directness and, it, and it removed any need to be reliable in any way and to just – and took away any need for you to like me or understand me because this is what's happened and it doesn't matter what you think. No one else it's ever happened to like it's happening to me now, the way we feel at that age. Right. you know. And so I knew I was in that pool. I don't know that I could have written the book from as an adult book about a 15-year-old girl. This is the only way I knew how to do it. Well, I've been having my own problems with the idea of the novel not being anywhere near the center of the cultural conversation anymore. And I know even saying that ages me in a certain way, reveals who I am. But, you know, it's weird. The novel for me as a kid, and I'm, I kind of was thinking about this uh, because of my boyfriend who's 30 and very into – he loves the narrative of video games. He loves the narrative of Final Fantasy XV. And in a way, I was thinking about how he loses himself in that. And I was thinking recently that for me, the novel was uh, was the video game in a way. It was virtual reality. And that kind of meditative immersion into someone else's life – uh, with you working while reading the words, because I think reading is an active experience. I don't think it's a passive experience. I think reading enhances empathy for people. You're stepping into someone else's shoes, seeing how they view the world, understanding them better. It's been replaced by other things for many, many, many people, young and old. Um, and although I'm really, I am well aware of the booming business of young adult fiction, uh, I guess I'm not concerned about that so much, but more about the literary novel that for many decades was talked about in circles that, you know, in circles that weren't only literary and that everyone would read, the populist literary novel, the novel that was at the center of the tension. And there used to be more of them, uh, I guess, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago than they are now, though I do talk about that in, in a wistful way and it makes me feel like I'm a bit of an old man. Though at my age, I really don't care if I'm a bit of an old man anymore. <laughs> I really don't care. I mean, I assume that you – don't you feel that in some way that the pose is no longer required after a certain age? I am beginning to, yeah, and it's nights of relief, isn't it? 
Molly Rewell was on the podcast a couple of years ago, and I asked her about working with Downey on The Pickup Artist and about John Hughes and about Warren Beatty, and she was very poised but didn't really want to go to certain places. She was almost diplomatic, and I thought that was fine. This is how she wants to present herself, and that's fine, but uh, this is not a shock jock show. This is a show where I just have people on that I'm interested in, and I have no desire to offend or put pressure on a guest. But after the podcast, she took me to task for being too hard, too inquisitive, too invasive and being too into my own questions. Now, the podcast is really about me and not the guest. And I know a lot about Molly Ringwald. I know secrets about her. I know how defiant she is, how outspoken she, she can be. She dated a good friend of mine for many, many, many years. But on the podcast, she wanted to present herself in a certain light. And when we talked about the podcast later, I told her that I wanted to hear her talk freely about her problems with Downey and the weirdness and disagreement she's had with her mentor, Warren Beatty, and to talk about it with you know, kind of neutrality. But do you feel the same way as someone of a certain age and demo that you need to present yourself in a certain light uh, for people to grasp you? Do you feel that you need to have a kind of neutrality and reserve? an empire elegance. Judd Nelson was on the podcast and he had hilarious stories that he told me and Adam about making St. Elmo's fire, uh, about problems with Demi Moore and uh, Joel Schumacher, he referred to him as. <laughs> and that there, but, but he didn't want to talk about them on the podcast because he didn't want to tell tales out of schools. And I didn't think any of them were that outrageous. I mean, a lot of people know about, you know, the coke addiction of young actresses during that period. But do you feel completely transparent now as you've gotten older? And as I said earlier, do you feel the need for the pose? You've always maintained, quote, I'm not good enough to fake things. Well, I don't know that I, uh, I mean, you've been hearing me talk, you'd tell you'd be a better judge of that than I am. Of, I don't feel any particular need to uh, protect anything, I don't think. I mean, I have strong opinions about many things, and I sort of don't mind sharing them like you know i'm not don't make my living as an actor yes right now so it's liberated me to be yourself whatever yeah right. and so um but what is that about because it is tough having actors who are currently working on the podcast having that kind of public discussion look i love jason schwartzman but we had to do the podcast twice at his urging because he felt he was not being he had been like maybe too rude to some people oh, and it's they a bore, to take isn't it? it's a fucking bore it is it is and it, <laughs> but it is part of the actors the working actor's life i suppose yeah, you kind that of have kind of to self-awareness and self-consciousness and self Regarding I, that it's just I, yeah, it's exhausting, and it's not interesting, you know. But I, I suppose the writing has helped me somewhat. Degree, you know, when I was writing that travel memoir, it's like, am I going to put this in? Well, if there's not an attempt of revealing truth on the page, why should anyone invest in it? You know what I mean? So what's the point? So, I mean, I don't think particularly I, I have. I have a lot of opinions. I have opinions about most things. I'm often wrong, and they mm -hmm. change. You know, I mean, Vince Enoffer might be a terrific guy now, and I met. I might meet him now and go, hey, Vince, that was a tough path. I'm, you know, nice to see, I'm glad, nice to see you now. You know, right. and I'd be fine with that. But, um, yeah, I have opinions about, you know, well, like, we talking about Leo DiCaprio. I'd have never met him, but why I think, you know, I think he's made choices he made that I don't think suit his gift. 
Remember the Scorsese films? I don't think so. No, I don't. I think he's a beautiful tenor. You know, that's what I would if, or you know, a fine, light instrument, delicate dancing kind of thing. And when he, you know, tries to be this man, I just go, oh god. Really, I do think the, his performance in The Wolf on Wall Street is one of the great. I didn't performances. see. I didn't see that. You haven't seen that? Yeah, okay. I didn't see that. Adam, do you have any questions? Now that you've kind of rounded out your career with directing and you've written, does that give you a kind of, I don't know, a hindsight into your acting as a young guy and maybe you would have done things differently besides the drinking, just knowing the perspective of a director and a writer? Well, I think I'm a much much um, easier actor now than I was then. I mean, if a director tells me to go over, stand in the corner, face the other way on my head, I go, yeah, sure, okay. Whereas, because when I'm directing and somebody comes in and goes, no, I wouldn't go over there, I, I would go over here. I'm like, oh, God. You've developed uh, like an empathy for the other side. I have a huge empathy for actors, and I've been directing commercials for, for Europe and also directed this web series over the summer. And I have to tell you, I really like actors. And there was an actor, there was one moment where a producer was making motions behind an actor, you know, just like he was going to blow his head off. And it was, it was for a commercial. The actor had no lines. One day shoot in a bar in Silver Lake, just a group of people at a table. This young actor, maybe 22, 23, comes up to the crowd, we're lighting the shot, and said, what would I be doing here at at nine in the morning? And I said, well, it's really not nine in the morning. It's nine in the morning now, but it will be like six <laughs> o'clock later. He said, no, but what would my, why would my guy be here? And he's not even the lead in the commercial. And I started to explain, well, maybe it's after work or something. You want to drink? And I had that conversation. And it also happened a few times on The Deleted, the show I did, where an actor would come in and really have some earnest questions about what was going on with this character. I didn't mind that. I mean, Actors are so important that you've got to really treat them in a certain way or else you're going to fuck yourself. Well, that's for sure. I mean, it, <laughs> that's for sure. But I, I – look, I have every actor neuroses there is, so I understand them and I have a certain – I prefer if an actor just walks in and bam, there it of is. Of course. Walk away. But, you know, I'll help you go through whatever you have to go through to get there. And I generally have – I have more empathy now for actors that I'm directing than I did when I was acting. 